Such a good song, huh? All right, we're going to be in John chapter 21 this morning, and I would encourage you to open up your Bibles. There's Bibles in the pews in front of you, um, because there are some details in this account that I absolutely love. And so if you just want to grab a Bible, I mean, if you have a a Bible app on your phone, um, go ahead and feel free to use that. We will have the verses on the screen as well. But there are some things that I want you to actually see with your own eyes this morning as well. And so while you're going there, I'm just going to open us up in a word of prayer real quick. So if you'll join me, Uh, Father God, we are just so grateful that we can come again into uh, your presence collectively. God, we know that you are with us always. Your word promises that you'll never leave nor forsake us. But God, we get to come together. We get to encourage each other. We get to bear each other's burdens. We get to just, God, come together and worship you collectively. And so God, I just pray that uh, now as we come to hear what your word has to say, May it be your word spoken. And God, I just pray that you speak through me to hearts that are just ready to be transformed, to hear what your redeeming message is. God, we thank you because it is all because of what you have done that we are able to come here. And so God, we just love you. We praise you. And we pray that you let your spirit enter into our hearts and speak to us today. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray all this. Amen. So uh, I've mentioned in the past that I'm a basketball fan. I actually used to be an assistant basketball coach. I dabbled one year in coaching junior high basketball, didn't have a winning record, realized it wasn't for me. But there was like when I graduated high school, I was able to actually coach the very team that I graduated from as like a sophomore in high school. And I remember like our team, I, or a sophomore in college, not high school. That would have been really cool. But uh, I was a sophomore in college and I came back and I was the assistant coach. And there, there was a moment where our team had an attitude problem. And so like we would go up, miss a layup or something. And we would decide, let's not get back on defense, but let's stay at the other end of the court and pout about it. And it never really set right with me that that was allowed or anything. And so, um, but you know, the non-controversial person that I am, I decided not to say a word about it. And so um, I was real mature, still living at my parents' house at this time. And um, I remember getting home that evening after basketball practice and I was just kind of fed up. I was not very happy about it. It was like, man, like our our team's got this attitude problem. Nothing is being done about it. And honestly, I just started unloading. It was like the floodgates opened and I was going to say everything I felt like saying to my parents. And so uh, like I'm doing this for maybe 10, 15 minutes and um, all of a sudden I get a phone call. And my phone's in my pocket, and so I, I pull it out, and I'm like, oh, look, it's the head coach. And so, like, nothing is happening. I just answer it, and I'm like, hey, what is going on? And he's like, hey, do you know that you called me? And I was like, no, no, I, you know, silly phones. I must have pocket dialed you. This was like the old Nokia bricks that had the buttons on the front. And I was like, you know, these, these crazy technologies. I must have pocket dialed you, and it, no big deal, man. I'm sorry about that. And he was like, yeah, I heard everything you said. Huh? <laughs> like, here's my resignation. Um, I'm done. But no, I mean, like, honestly, like, he was just like, he heard everything 
I had to say. And I was just like, oh, no. And, and so, like, honestly, I, the, the dude was so great about it. Like, he called me the next day. We talked it out after I didn't sleep a wink. And I vomited multiple times, probably, just because it was like, ah, like, confrontation. And, I mean, he gave me so much grace about it. Have you ever had a moment like that? We call them, oh, some people use different words. Oh, no moments like just you have been found out. I mean, like, how do you respond in those situations? Like, dude, we weren't talking about you. Like it was this other coach that I'm working with or, you know, like, I don't know. There's really no easy way out of that. But again, the guy was so gracious to me. He totally was cool about it. He let me keep working with him. And it's like that moment has like scarred me for one. So like any time now, it's like I'm just going to put my phone right here and step away and also not talk about people like <laughs> should have learned that right there. But we have an encounter in the Bible that is very similar to that one. I mean, like, you know, Peter I, I relate with Peter. I think my last name being Peter Mann is so fitting for me. Because like Peter made some amazing statements. He is like the leader of the 12 disciples. Um, like Jesus is the ultimate leader. But then Peter is the leader among all the disciples. He is the one that made great profound statements. I mean Peter was like so good at so many times. And then you have the other side of Peter who has all of these moments where he is known for sticking his foot in his mouth because he reacts so impulsively. I mean, one that comes to mind is Peter walking on water, where he sees Jesus off at the distance, and Jesus is walking on water. And so Peter's like, Lord, if it's you, call me out on the waves as well. And so Jesus says, come. And so Peter like jumps out of the boat and starts walking on water. And it's like, yeah, I want to be that Peter. And then Peter starts looking around and he starts freaking out and he starts drowning. And he's like, Lord, help me. And that's the Peter I relate to all the time. And just like I shared with that whole encounter with the coach, Peter had this moment with Jesus. And, and leading up to this, like Peter, again, he walked on water. He had profound statements. He did amazing things. I mean, in John chapter 6, verse 68 through 69, Jesus has just had like hundreds of people leave him. And then Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and says, are you all going to leave me as well? And Peter responds with, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Pretty amazing statement. I mean, like, yeah, let's be that, Peter. And then Peter, even as Jesus is talking about, he is going to be crucified Peter is the one that says, Lord, let it not happen. This is in Matthew 16. It says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So, I mean, imagine if you were being told this. Here's your leader, the one that Peter left his job to follow after. Peter said, you gave me an out when you said, are you going to leave me too? And I said, Lord, there's nobody else but you. And now Jesus is saying, hey, 
I'm going to go, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be tortured and killed. And so Peter, he takes Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him and says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have what is in plan for me, what God has in plan for me. But I mean, yeah, wouldn't we be in that same situation? I mean, following Jesus, like Jesus, I left my house. I left everything, my job. I'm coming to follow you. And Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm going to die in a couple weeks, a couple months. It's like, nah, Jesus, I'm ready to go to battle. And he proves it when they come to arrest Jesus. And he pulls out his sword and is ready to go to war. I mean, yeah, that's the Peter that I want to be. And then even whenever Jesus is talking about being uh, uh, crucified on the last supper that he has with the disciples, he says, one of you is going to deny or betray me. And then he says, Peter, you're even going to deny me. And so this is from multiple gospels here that I kind of combined together. This is kind of how the conversation went. So Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you? I will lay down my life for you. I am ready to die for you. And then in Luke, we're told that Peter says that. He says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then in Mark, we're told, he says, even though they all, everybody else falls away, I will not. And so Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter said emphatically, if I must die, I will never deny you, Lord. Even if they come to take my life, I am faithful. I am loyal to you. Lord, to whom am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I will never deny you. I will never leave you. So Peter makes these bold predictions, these bold statements. And then as we know, Peter responds like a coward. I mean, we know that they come and it's a little servant girl that comes up to him as Peter is sitting there, as Jesus is in his darkest moments. And this little servant girl comes up to him and says, hey, wait, aren't, aren't you associated with him? Aren't you one of the 12? And he says, I don't even know the man. And then a little while later, another person comes up to him and they're like, aren't you one of them? And he's like, no, I don't know who he is. And we're told he progressively gets further and further. He denies Jesus three times. This is in John 18, starting in verse 15. It says he followed Jesus. And another disciple did as well. And I believe that is John, the one who is writing all this. And it says, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. We're going to come back to that in a second. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And then jumping down to verse 25, Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden? Peter again denied it. And we're told in another passage that Peter begins swearing and cursing, denying it. It's like Peter's not just wanting to say, no, I'm not one of them. His actions are going so far to say, don't even associate with men, with me with them. Let me use profanity. Let me swear and curse so that you don't think I'm one of them. I mean, he's doing everything he can. And so Jesus in his darkest moment, is being denied by his closest friend. And then in Luke, we are told some, in in the whole narrative of the crucifixion, these words are kind of the most painful to me, because this is where Peter kind of has that oh no moment. Because in Luke chapter 22, verse 60, it says, Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And it says, immediately, When he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So first off, the rooster's crowing, and he's realizing what Jesus has said. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But look at the next verse. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. I mean, imagine that. Like, I got a phone call, and I was talking bad about this guy, and my gut sank. I mean, what is Peter going through at this moment? Where he has just said, Jesus, I will never deny you. Even if I have to die or be thrown in prison, I am faithful to you. And then a servant girl says, aren't you one of them? And he's like, no, I'm not. I don't even know the man. He starts swearing and cursing. And then the rooster crows and Jesus turns and looks directly at him. I mean, my heart would just sink Like, he just betrayed Jesus. It's one thing to realize, oh man, I just betrayed Jesus. But I feel like that turn and look at Peter just crushed him all the more. Because it's like, all right, maybe if I deny Jesus and he has no idea about it. But Jesus knows entirely. And he's looking at Peter. And I mean, we don't look, have to look very far to realize we're Peter here. I mean, how many times have we been in our life talking to God and it's like, all right, maybe it's that first moment where you give your life over to Christ. And it's like, Jesus, man, I felt the work in my spirit. I'm ready to follow you, God. You are everything. And then you get back in that crowd and you start laughing at those jokes or cracking those jokes or looking at images, or doing substances, or whatever it is. And it's like, Jesus, I told you I would never do those again. But maybe one more time. And then you feel that conviction on your heart after you do it one more time. And then you're like, never again. God, I will never. That was the last time. And sometimes it's not even an hour later. Those urges hit you again. And you're like, God, I just said never again. And now it's on me again. And it's like, God, I'm not going to. All right, I'll go through and I'll do it. Never again. I did it again. We keep falling back, as we're told in Proverbs, as a dog returns to his vomit, so one man returns to his folly. I mean, we constantly have these moments 
Where it's like, God, I know you would not like this at all. I know if you were really here, newsflash, he's really there. But it's like, if we could get that in our mind, it's like, God, I knew if you were really looking at me, you would hate what I'm going through. Maybe, God, you would even like revoke your love for me. You would take back your salvation. That's why we get in the working mentality of like whatever sin we blatantly commit, we are like, all right, now I have to do X, Y, and Z, and then God will love me. We feel like we have to earn it again. I mean, we don't have to look far to see that we are Peter so many times. And oftentimes, in my own life even, I'm left with, how could God ever use me now? If God really knew what I did, he does. But if God really knew the deepest, darkest thoughts in my mind, then he would not love me. Maybe he would love me because he's got that whole, you know, I said I'd love you, I died on the cross for you, but I'm not going to use you. I have no purpose for you. If God really knew who I was, he would never want me again. It's kind of like, I'll give you heaven, but you're over there where the lepers and all those other sinners are, and we'll save like the real good place for Jesus. That's not the way it is though. And that's where we hit this story in John chapter 1, 21, where Jesus has this beautiful encounter with Peter and some other disciples, where Jesus is going to take so many things from the past and relay them to what they're about to go through. And he's going to say, hey, I'm not done with you. So John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It says, after this, this is the resurrection. Jesus has revealed himself a couple times to some other disciples. It says, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And so Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, well, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So put yourself in the disciple's shoes here. Jesus has just gone through, I mean, you as a disciple have gone through a roller coaster of a last like 10, 11 days. Because Jesus has had three years of public ministry, amazing things have happened. You have believed that he is the Messiah, the one who came to save you from Rome, from everything. And then Jesus has the triumphal entry. And it's like, yes, Hosanna in the highest. You are worthy of everything. And then Jesus gets handed over. And it's like, oh, high to low. And then it's like, well, hey, they're shouting like uh, uh, Pilate is going to give us either Jesus or Barabbas. They will let Jesus go. So he's arrested, but he's about to be freed. And then you hear crucify Jesus. That's who we want to have dead. And so then it's like, oh, no. And then you see the, the, what you thought was the Messiah hanging on a tree, bleeding out all of his blood. And then you see them take him down and you see them put him in the tomb and roll a massive stone and put guards in front of it. And it's just like what I thought was rock bottom became even more rock bottom. And it's just worse and worse. And then you have Saturday. 
And it's like, you are just emotionally, physically, mentally drained. And then comes Sunday. I mean, Jesus has already appeared to the disciples. So you go from like this rock bottom to all of a sudden Jesus revealing himself to you. And you are like on a high, but there's some uncertainty still. They're still kind of like, okay, where do we go from here? I mean, like I'm exhausted. And Peter's probably like, man, like Jesus, he's risen from the dead. I still denied him. I still, like, you guys ran away. I denied even knowing the man. Like, I, I just putting myself in Peter's shoes, it hurts. It's like, yeah, he's risen, hallelujah. I don't know if I want to encounter him. Like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to see him again. And so what I'm going to do is, hey, guys, I'm going fishing and they all come, and on top of that, they have an entire night where they don't even catch a single thing. Like, not a good day of fishing. But the story continues on. In verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? A horrible question to ask. They answered him, no, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That, the, excuse me, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away. And here we start seeing detail in John's writings, because John is the youngest disciple. He's the one that wrote John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And he opens up 1st John by saying, I saw Jesus, I heard Jesus, I touched Jesus, I was in the presence of Jesus. And here he is saying, hey, let me tell you, I was there. There are details in this story. Because Jesus walks up and he says, children, do you have any fish? Which literally means little boys. Like how demeaning is that? I don't think Jesus meant it demeaning at all. I think Jesus meant it in a loving way. But it literally means little boys, have you any fish? Which again, I mean, spend an hour fishing and somebody come up, catch anything, and you're just like, I want to throw you in this water right now. Like, no, I haven't caught a thing. And if you're fishing with the Eddingtons, it just intensifies it that much more because they are pros. But it's like, do you have any fish? And they're like, no. So Jesus is about to do something beautiful though. He says, cast the net on the right side. Detail number one. He's not like just throw it on the other side. John's like, I was there. Throw it on the right side. And they do. And there are so many fish, they can't even pull it into the boat. And I love how instantly John knows. He says that the disciple whom Jesus loves, a great nickname for yourself. I mean, I'm the one that Jesus really loved. Peter, you might have been the best friend. I'm the one that Jesus really loves. And he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps in the water. And we see, uh, just a little aside, we see jabs from John at Peter throughout the gospel of John that are fun to read. I mean, first off, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, we're told that the disciple who Jesus loves, there's jab number one, Peter, it's not you, it's me. 
I see it written from like a little teenager's point of view and I love it. But it's like the disciple whom Jesus loved beat Peter to the tomb. If you've never read in John chapter 20, the resurrection story, they're told that the tomb is empty and Peter and this other disciple run and there's this little moment in there where it's like the disciple whom Jesus loved beat Peter to the tomb and then Peter, when he got there, went inside first. And it's like, let's just jab at Peter a little bit. I love it. If you think reading the Bible is boring, you got to get into this vision. I mean, maybe you just got to get in a little kid's mindset. I don't know. And then you have these things here. I mean, just throughout it, you have these jabs. But this account, I mean, the way that John knew that it was, Pe- that it was Jesus is because this is how Jesus called Peter. I mean, almost in detail. In Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 3, it says that getting into the boats, which was Simon's, who is Peter, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land. They spent all night fishing. Peter was cleaning his nets when this account happens. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answers how a lot of people would answer, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the feet of Jesus and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And so here we see that was before Jesus is calling the disciples. And now after the resurrection, Jesus is having the same encounter with them. He's duplicating this. And so Peter rushes to shore. He like throws on his outer garment, jumps in the water, swims over to Jesus. And then we continue on in verse 9 of John chapter 21. It says... When they had gone out on land, when they had got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter brought, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. But notice John saying again, I was there, 153, that's detailed writing. It wasn't a large number of fish. It was 153 And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now one of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, I kind of tried emphasizing one part here. And I I want you to kind of, if you're into writing in your Bibles, charcoal fire, like circle, highlight, underline, do whatever you can. Because that moment right there is beautiful. Because, again, in our Bibles, we read it in English. It was originally written in Greek. The New Testament was. And over 400 times, there is the word for fire. It's pyre, where we get pyro. Some of you are all too familiar with that. Pyromaniacs. But we get the word pyre. 400 times pyre is used, but not here. This word is called anthrakia for charcoal fire. 
It is used in the Bible a total of two times. One here in John chapter 21. The only other place that word is ever used in God's word is John chapter 18, verse 18, where it says they lit a charcoal fire and Peter denied Jesus. I mean, how cool is that? That like God and Jesus is saying, hey, remember this? Remember that moment you denied me? Remember that moment? Like imagine Peter swimming to shore, getting up there. That looks familiar. I got to go, Jesus. I don't, I can't handle this right now. But Jesus is wanting a moment with Peter. Those moments where we are like, Jesus, I can't go back to church because it brings up memories. Or Jesus, I can't go back to that spot. Or Jesus, just erase this memory from my mind because I can't handle it. Jesus is not wanting to say, hey, let's erase it completely. Jesus is wanting to say, hey, let's redefine it completely. Let's take that moment that you dread and regret and want to avoid with everything that you have, and I want to have a moment with you around that, and I want to redefine it. I want to say, that doesn't disqualify you. Because of what I've done, you are qualified. I want to call you out of that and move you forward. I want to take that and say, you are able to be used. And so, that's what Jesus does because he ends up taking Peter and having a conversation with Peter starting in verse 15 where Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, you know, I love you, Jesus. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Imagine that. Three times Peter denied Jesus and three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? I mean, it's like so many times in this account, we are seeing Jesus redrawing his calling of Peter. And he's like, hey, Peter, I still choose you. I still want you. I still died for the very thing that you are regretting right now. That's what he's wanting to say to you. I know what you've done. I turned and looked at you while you committed the very thing that put me on that cross. But I love you. But I died for that. I want you to have a new life. It's like he was saying to Peter, Peter, I conquered the grave. I can conquer the sin that holds you back. Now go and do my work. I am calling you out of that moment and into something beautiful. I have a purpose for you. I'm not done with you yet. You did not out my grace. It's not like I was like, well, it's for that one thing that I didn't die for. No, Jesus died for us. He says, you're not worthless. You're not a failure you're my child, and I love you, and I've called you to something. Don't let what's defining your past be what defines your future. But instead, give your life over to me. Because that's how Jesus ends his conversation with Peter. 
Three times he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then in John 21, verse 19, after saying all of that, Jesus gives this command, follow me. That's what I ask for you to do. Follow me. Follow where I'm leading you. Don't let that hold you back. I died for that. And now I'm calling you to move forward into following me. He knows what you've done. He knows what your past is. He knows the times that you've denied him completely and he still wants to accept you. He knows the times that you've rejected his word and followed your own selfish desires. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 through 10. Because Paul tells us, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed not Jesus, but the course of this world. You obeyed your body. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us once walked and lived in the passions of our flesh. We didn't carry out what Jesus wanted. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Beautiful words following up here. But God. Aren't those amazing words? You were all these things. Like, what is one good thing Paul said about us right there? Nothing. You were dead. You followed the devil, the spirit of the powers of the air. You followed your own body, your own selfish desires. You were dead. Meaning you could do nothing. But God. Oh my goodness, I love those words. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, Peter, even when you were denying Jesus, even when you said, I do not know him, not only did you say it, you started cussing so that you weren't even associated with him by your actions. Even when you were dead in your transgressions, Christ died for you. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us to get up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Notice where we're seated. Not out yonder like, man, I got to let you in, but you better stay away. No, he said, hey, I want you to come in and I want you sitting in my presence. You are with me because of what Jesus did. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, so stop trying to earn it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, it is I, this is me, Andy Peterman, I denied Jesus multiple times, but God accepted me regardless. I was dead in my sins, but God gave me a hope. <laughs> 
and a future. I, I was worthless to this world, but God gave me value and a purpose. I was addicted to things that were displeasing to God. Even after I knew who God was, I still gave in to these addictions, but God set me free from them because he's God and he wants to do a work in you. So he took me from my addictions and he said, stop living for your flesh and your own stupid personal desires and start living for me. That's the call he's making to every single person here. He's saying it doesn't matter what you've done. I want to take what you've done. And really, honestly, like I know that Psalm 103 tells us as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions from us. But I don't think that we should be like, (laughs) it's water on the bridge. I'm never going to talk about it, think about it, use it again. I think what God's wanting is for us to take our history and say, Jesus redeemed it. Not be like, man, I have no history. No, I have a history of being dead in sin, addicted to lust, giving my life over to whatever my body and my heart desired, and Christ took that and gave me a new life. That's the testimony that you have to share. That Christ took a dead soul and gave it life. That Christ took an addicted life and made it addicted to him. I mean, we should not say, I don't want to talk about my past. I think we as a church should be so quick to say, man, I was dead to sins, but Christ made me alive to him. I mean, if we can't be real about that, then it really puts on a fake Christianity. If we can't be real about saying, I struggled, but God pulled me from that. Because otherwise, people are going to be like, you have no idea what I'm going through. And it's like, really, honestly, I do. I know the struggles of being addicted. I know the struggles of just living to whatever. I know the struggles of being, you know, controlled by people's opinions, controlled by whatever it is. I, I understand. And Jesus gave me life. I'm still struggling with it, but Jesus gave me purpose. Jesus gave me a future and a hope. I mean, Christians, we've got to get real about this. We have got to get serious about what Christ has done in our life because honestly, too many times we have the boring old, Jesus died for my sins, he loves me. I mean, what? That sounds boring. No, Jesus saved me. Jesus saved my life. He, I was bound for hell and Jesus gave me heaven. That's grace. What did I do to earn it? Diddly squat. That's an official term. I did diddly squat to earn it. He did everything. The only thing that I've done is received it. He opened the prison doors and I walked through. That's all. I mean, I didn't open doors. I didn't do anything. I walked through. He has opened the doors. He did that at the cross. What he is saying to you now is what he said to Peter in John 21, 19. Hey, follow me. That's all I'm calling you to do. Follow me. That's the offer that Jesus has for you today. Whether you have been a Christian for 30 years, Jesus' offer is, hey, follow me. I know you had that moment where you're giving your life over to the lusts of the flesh. Hey, follow me. 
I want to redeem that from you. I want to give you a new hope. I know you're going through that. Hey, follow me. I love you. I died for you. I gave you a new hope. As long as there is breath in your lungs, you are not too far gone for Christ to redeem you. He wants to. Are you going to accept the invitation that he offers to follow him? Whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or whether at this moment you're like, man, a Christian is not how you would define me. It'd probably be more like drunk, addict, pervert, whatever you want to fill in the blanks with, all the sins of the world, that's how I would be defined. Jesus says, I want to take that and give you a new definition. Child of God, saved by grace, redeemed for his work. All he says is, follow me. Father God, thank you. Thank you that it is by grace that we are saved, not of our works, nothing that we can do. It is solely what you have done for us. God, we thank you for that. I thank you for that grace that continues to abound even when I walk in sins right now that I know you are opposed to God and yet we give in. You still love us. You still have not rejected us. And so God, I pray for your people, people who have placed their faith in you. May we just live in that truth. May we start seeing our history as what you are calling us out of and not as something terrible, even though what we did is terrible, God. It put you on the cross. But may we see it as a way to just share the redeeming power that you have done. And God, if there's anybody who has not not experienced that saving grace, God, let them experience it. Let them give their heart over to you. And so God, we just pray whatever work you are doing in your people, we entrust it over to you because you are the best place to place it. So God, just do your work and may we respond accordingly in the name of Jesus.